because their lives got wrecked. Now, we think there's probably three factors. I've done no research on this. This I wish I could do, but these are very hard things to do hard research in our world on this stuff. It's just really impossible. But I, I, I think there are three factors that really lend themselves towards resilience. I think number one is that the child themselves, the child is a gazunta, confident, good self-esteem, not the classic profile of an abused child that's the nebuch and the sad and the problematic and the out of the sugya, you know, out of sync, not sporty, but a gesunter, healthy kid who unfortunately this happened to them. I think one of the factors of resilience is that they have anyway a more resilient core of being, of self-esteem, that they can overcome this thing somehow. I don't know how that works with it, not in the sugi of sexuality. I didn't work that out. But somehow maybe they know I shouldn't be in and they can put it out. They can bury it. I don't know. I just don't know. But number one is that they have a, a core of confidence and self-good, you know, whatever, to begin with. Number two, they have parents who have such an open relationship with them, they could tell them. I, uh, many of the resilient people told me when I asked them, yeah, I told my father about it right away. It's very interesting. Yeah, I told my mother. Yeah, we said, and they told you know, and it was over. It appears that immediate telling over could be, again, I don't have proof of this, but anecdotally, it could be the fact that you can tell your parents right away could be you take yourself out of the sugya somehow. There could be some psychological phenomena that I was in temporarily, I told my parents, I know it's wrong, so I stepped out and I said, that's an aberration. It could be that the privacy of it means you dwell within the sugya and therefore you never exit from it. So it could be the second factor is the ability to say over, you know, something to tell someone. And the third one is clearly if anyone got immediate treatment. Immediate treatment seems to, seems to work. The only problem is we just don't have enough people in our world who know how to treat. And the wrong treatment is more mazic than, than, than no treatment. So it's a real problem that we must have people who know how to treat. That's the sugya bifnei atzmo. Um, anyway, so that's the issue of resilience, and that's one of the hardships we have in implementing real changes. We always run up against people who are adamant that you don't need this, and it's not true, and you're making a whole you know, mountain out of a molehill. And, and that's an English saying, right? Is that right? Good, okay. Right? And, and it's just not... And that's a problem itself, which I address privately with people, because usually those people who are most outspoken usually are the, res, uh, the fortunate ones who are resilient, who are lucky enough to be resilient. But even in the sugi of resilience, I just want to again acknowledge, later on, that same resilience appears to go away with many of them. I don't know how many, and they fall apart later. So I'm not sure what the permanent, if there is permanent resilience, I don't know. But it appears to be. Okay, let's go to now 8A, which was B, which is now A. Back to A again. Difference in boys and girls. Okay, so there's a different sugya of boys and girls, even though the statistics appear to be the same, the same 20% that get abused, of which half will be resilient and half will have their lives wrecked. But, it, uh, but nevertheless, it's a different sugya. Here's the sugya. We'll do boys first, then we'll do girls. Boys are almost always, typically, molested first time. Let's just do the onfang into the sugya, because the repetition and later behavior, that's a separate piece too. But let's just talk about how does it happen to begin with. In our world, 
the on-fine of sexual abuse for boys is almost always out of the home, not in the home. It's almost always in school, yeshiva, outside the home, camp, any outside the home place. It's the first molestation is almost always at a very young age. Primary, uh, five years and six years old, seven years old. It's a very, very young age. That's the first time they get molested. They don't even know they're molested. They don't know what molestation even is. And yet, lays dormant in them, these little kids, the interest in this sugya that then places them into a place where they hit puberty later on and, and they explode. Because they've always been thinking in terms of private parts. Many of them will self-stimulate during those years. They'll rub themselves and touch themselves. The parents go with sugar from it and don't know why they're doing it and how to stop them. You know, and they just, they just play with them. They'll do it publicly. They don't, they don't, they're not aware of it as a sexual act. But what they've discovered is they have private parts. And they're now involved. So uh, the chronic kids who chronically touch themselves and play with themselves or would touch some other kid, uh, they're all molestation victims who've been brought into the sugya. So typically it's out of the home. Can it just be simply a kid? Yeah, it could. It could. It absolutely could. With the chronic repeated, the kid who simply plays with himself, when the parents simply tell him not to and it's not sneer stick, two or three times he stops. Those simple ones, they, there's a simple answer. Talk to them about it. Explain it to them. You know, you stop them, you behaviorally may... Uh, I'm not saying you should give them a smack, but, you know, a little kid might get a smack or might get a reward or whatever, a natural parental reaction to inappropriate behaviors, and it stops. It doesn't stop with these kids. It's a chronic part of their personality that makes parents meshuga. Meshuga. So typically with boys, it's very early, it's very young, and it typically lays dormant. With the little kids, they can often be used by older kids for years, before anyone knows about it. They, they get to know who does it. There'll be older kids who know, they know which kids, and these kids becomes their playthings in school. And it happens in school, in yeshiva, in shore, and in camp. And it goes on for years with these little kids till, as you can understand now, the development of the abuse, it becomes part of their world view, of their nature, of their life. It's part of who they are is being involved in these things. And they don't really have a concept of sexuality yet. Later on, a certain percentage, which I'll talk about, will of course start repeating it because it's just part of who and what they are. With girls... So that's with boys. It's older boys. In in school, typically it'll be boy, boys who are prepubescent to puberty. It'll be kids sort of from 11 and a half, 12, 13, 14, that age group, having access to boys who are 5, 6, 7, or 8 years old, playing with them. That's, that's the typical on-fun of boys' sexual abuse in our world. And again, this sexual abuse is not just boys playing with each other. It's because they're now in the sugya. They're wrecked. They're really wrecked. With girls, a different sugya. With girls, it almost always happens first time at home. With girls, it's almost always a girl the first time between the age of 9 and 13 by an older brother between the age of 15 and 19. That is the classic, classic one. 95% of all girl cases that come my way are girls between 9 and 13 
by an older brother between 15 and 19. That's the on fund for her, where a brother will play with her. And in the case of girls, it go, with boys, it's, okay, when, when am I going to get there? Okay, no, I'm going there in a moment. Okay. It's going to be a different sugya, how it plays out. In the case of boys, let's move on. The impact. With boys, it's likely to be associated with violence and fear. That means like this. Little boys will be threatened. Little boys will be told by the older boys. They'll be pinned up against the wall. And they'll be threatened. You tell anyone, I'm going to kill you. If you tell anyone, I'm going to kill them too. I'm going to kill your parents. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to say you did it, not me. They get threatened and they're terrified. The association with boys is like we think in the case of rape. Even though it's not a rape, it's, a, it's going to be a touching, but it's an association, an introduction to sexuality, which is associated to violence and fear. There's a lot of anger and fear relates to it, and they're truly terrified to say anything. It's why they almost always don't, because they have magical thinking. It's why later on I'm going to talk to you about what you're meant to do like what are parents meant to how are we meant to react and in that reaction we address that issue in the statement parents have to be trained to say to little children includes and all little children I, I, I mean my car god which I'll say later is if your kid goes away from your home a boy then you better talk to him about sexual abuse there's a one in five chance it's going to happen to him so you better talk to him <laughs> I mean, statistics speak for themselves. And it's a simple little statement. I'll explain later what it is and how to do it. Okay, but included in that statement is, and even if someone says to you, they're going to hurt you, if you don't do it, or if you tell, it's a lie. It's not true. I'm bigger than them. Don't ever be afraid. You have to tell the kids. If you don't say that, they won't tell you because they're terrified. It's almost always associated with a frightened, fearing threat of some sort. And the threat's real. Like an older kid, he's reenacting, you have to understand, he's not a villain, he's not a criminal. He's reenacting what happened to him. When it happened to him the first time, this is how it happened. Some kid threatened him. They're reenacting a parasha, not because they're particularly violent criminals. They're not. They're just reenacting a story that played out. <coughs> In the storyline is frightening the little kid into not telling anyone, so that's what they do, because that's what happened to them. They're not mean people per se. See, I say this because otherwise we're out there scanning for a mean, nasty kid. That's no riot that he's an abuser. He may just be a bad middle. That doesn't mean he's an abuser. The abuser could be a soft, edel, sweet kid. But at that moment, part of the parsha, the nusach, of how you administer, unfortunately, abuse, is by saying this line, you better not tell anyone or I'm going to hurt you. So so it's forced to think we're looking for some bad, angry, criminal-type person. Or to think that a bad, angry, criminal-type person could be an abuser. It just doesn't mean it. That association unfortunately, takes most kids away from telling us. That's why four out of five, as the statistics we read, don't say anything, because they're threatened. Girls, it's not like that. They're not threatened. It's a whole different problem with a girl, because the threat comes in the implication of her life, because she's older. Most boys are younger when it first happens to them. 
And it happens, like I said, someone grabs them, they pull their pants down, and they touch them or play with them, or they pull their pants down, and pants, in this case, means pants. They pull them down and make them touch them. They touch each other, they're private parts. Why they do that and what that's about, I'm going to explain a little later. Not now, but that's the, the maestro that most typically happens as the on phone. All the other things I said are also true, but the most classic and typical we get is a kid gets cornered in a stairwell, he gets cornered in a back of a playground behind a building, in a bathroom. You know, today I tell them, if you're ever building a school, do not have like a big bathroom room with large, it'll have just a straight line with individual, you know, like toilets, so to speak. Just, just there shouldn't be a place two kids can ever go together in a bath, a room. There can't be a washroom with, with a place where they can go because that happens so fast. It can happen. Sexual abuse can happen in 30 seconds. A life is wrecked. 30 seconds. Because the kid will go, and I'm going to explain exactly what they're getting and how they're going to do it, but the event can happen in 30 seconds. Push them into a stall, pull their pants down, touch them, threaten them, hold their neck, and play with their privates and out. That's 30-second miser. And now this kid's got a lifetime wrecked in a 30-second miser. So I recommend when they have school buildings, get rid of bathrooms. Just have, like on a corridor, on a hallway, just individual rooms where... You can't, it's not so easy to go in with another kid. You can't find a way to get in because that's where most of it happens. Recesses, I always beg them, make sure the bathroom area or private, you know, kids go out to the bathroom. Someone has to be there monitoring because most sexual abuse, that's when it occurs. In the recess times, the break times, the kid goes out to the bathroom and then another kid goes out and he sees a little kid and whams him into a room, into a bathroom stall, and that's where the mice happens. It happens there, it happens in stairwells is the most common, it happens behind buildings, but it happens in school, shul, camp. You know, these private kind of out of the house. Now with girls, a different story. With girls, a 9 to 13 year old little girl is, uh, is typically, typically trying to go to sleep at night when her brother visits her room late at night. And essentially, he will arouse himself on her body. That's what he does. He touches her body while arousing himself or arouses himself, stimulates himself on her body. And this poor little girl is almost always so utterly terrified. She's so frightened. She's so scared. She pretends to stay, play asleep. And now she's stuck. Now she's got a real problem. Because this poor little girl has pretended to be asleep while this big brother comes in, and sometimes they keep their eyes shut. They tell me they kept, they were so terrified of what was going on, they kept their eyes shut. They didn't want to look. They didn't want to see. So they just didn't see what was going on. But they kind of knew. Included in this mice is now the following problem for a girl. It's a different thing with a boy. It's a whole different story. This is against his will. He has no choice. He's done. And then he's threatened. So when it happens the second time to a boy, he's so terrified he can't say no. He's not in the sugya of being able to say no because he actually believes his life is, is, is threatened. He could be hurt. He really... With a girl, it's a different story. The poor little thing, she closed her eyes and she tried to imagine this isn't happening, and yet it was. And she's sort of aware, she's 9 to 13, so she's quite aware already of something. So she knows something's going on that's really, really wrong and inappropriate. Here's her problem now. If she goes and tells her parents, 
she every, it's unbelievable how every and it's just incredible without unless we as parents say to our daughters and how on earth do you tell your daughter you know if a, your brother comes I mean how it's such an impossible thing to be able to say how to do that however because we don't this little girl believes her parents are going to say how could you let that happen why didn't you scream like why didn't you scream and she knows very well her parents are going to get really angry with her so what she decides to do this little girl is make sure it never happens again she's going to be strong it's never going to happen again until it does and I want to train why no one ever understands this and they blame the poor kids and I want to explain the lambdas of it in the, in the world of therapy this is actually something I did learn from the Goyim that's actually a, a true actual factual statement and explains rape and it's true here with our girls they always they have a kasha in rape how come rape victims always go back and get raped again what's pshant with that it's the most common thing in the secular world that a rape victim gets raped a second time in another setting it's like what are you asking for it and then they blame the victim there's this whole culture of blaming the victim because she dresses disgusting provocative then some guy hits on her and rapes her again and they have a whole kasha. How come? She brought it on herself. She's the victim. Blaming the victim. Okay. In the lambdas of blaming the victim, they finally worked out what is happening. And what's happening is the following. She's had a horrendous experience. She wants a reparative experience. Dahainu. She wants to repair the damage of what happened. What happened was because I didn't yell. I didn't stop him. I didn't scream. That's why I'm such a horrible person, and my parents, by all rights, will scream at me and yell at me, because they'll let, they th- I let it happen. I shouldn't have let it happen. I should have screamed. They're going to be mad with me. This is what this little girl's lumbus is. So she allows a reparative experience to Hainu. She leaves her door open. She, in a way, almost invites the process, hoping for a different outcome. What she's unconsciously looking for is a different outcome where the boy will come and she'll say no and she'll scream and she'll be able to do what she wished she'd done the first time but couldn't do. What she doesn't reckon sich with is she's a little girl and he's a big boy and he's after her and if he's after her, he's going to get her. And kachava. What happens is he comes in and she's hoping she'll have the strength and she doesn't and he does it again. Now what happens? What happens is, she's doomed for life. She's doomed, because Monashach, how is she ever going to tell her parents she didn't say it the first time, and she let it happen the second time? It was bad enough she didn't run right away or scream or stop happening. But now you let it happen twice? What are you? And they'll call her, in her mind, they're going to call her all sorts of, you know, you're a prutzer, you're intra, like what? Why didn't you say something? What's the matter with you? And most parents, by the way, will do that unless they're taught not to. They will actually say those words. They will be furious with their own daughter as if she allowed this thing. And I'll tell you, it gets even worse for poor girls because many parents' attitude is that boys will be boys. He's got tithers, but why did you let it happen? I've heard this from countless people. Boys will be boys. In a certain way, they soften the, 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 it's incredible, but they will soften the, the kasha they'll have is on their daughter. How'd you let it happen? Which is a pelotum to me, but there it is. Believe me, they're angry with him. But their the anger is not the same depth of anger because they have this boys will be boys piece with him. With her, 
Are you talking about Sneas? You don't even know. And they go crazy with her. She's done now, second time. Because the second time, all her lambda sin is gone. And she is completely convinced that now she can't go to her parents anymore. So she really thinks she's going to deal with this herself, and she can't. I've had countless cases of boys sleeping with their sisters for years. Two years, three years. I recently had a girl, a chesidisha girl, she was resilient. I don't know how. Until she got engaged. When she got engaged, she became almost psychotic. And no one had a clue why. She came to see me, and she'd become almost psychotic. She was borderline psychotic. Turns out two brothers had slept with her for about a five-year period. Two brothers, regularly. Ben Asmanim, she was there, you know, behavior Ben Asmanim. And she buried the whole thing, a tzniyastik, a frum chasidish, a girl, buried the whole thing. The word she said to me is, I am dead inside. I'm dead. She was almost psychotic because she was pushed into an engagement by a parent, you know, sees the guy one time, you know, and then she got to imagine, she, she knows she can't be physically with him. So I try. I was very fortunate that both families had the same Rebbe, and with her Rishus, I went to the Rebbe and told him the whole story, and we made a very long engagement, in her case, 10 months, we took 10 months, and I did an accelerated treatment for her. It wasn't done by the Chasna, it was close, it was close, but it was close enough that they could go ahead, and then I had to work with the boy, the Chasna, and tell him the truth. And uh, incredibly so, he was macabre, and he went ahead with the Chasna, which was amazing, knowing full well that in all likelihood they're not going to be together or be intimate for a long time, until she's fully healed. A girl is really in a parasha, with a brother especially, and especially what happens is that some of these boys who do it to the girls, and it seems to be a split to me, there are those amongst the boys, I don't understand it yet how, because they've not explained, they don't know themselves. I ask them, they don't know, they don't know. How did you stay from yeshivish while you're playing with your own with your sister? Like, how did that work? And they don't know. It seems like they've separated somewhere. There's the Ruchnia spiritual me who goes to yeshiva and harms away. And then there's the other me that's my nefesh They don't know the answer. They sit there crying in my office. They don't know the answer. The other half go off the derech with a vengeance. They look at themselves as the scum of the earth. They look at themselves. These are the ones that break in the late teenage years. You have these kids who suddenly are 16, 17, 18. They break hard off the derech with a vengeance, with an animosity, with a fury. And they're suddenly, you know, totally fried doing drugs. And, and there's an anger there. There's some, what they're really doing is they're trying to grapple with what they've done. And they can't deal with it. They just can't deal with it. So they bury themselves. They certainly don't belong in the from world. So they exit from the from world because they can't live with themselves. By the way, all these people were molested by others. Is yes. Yes. No. 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 It's always the case. So I mean, you know, by us, the lambda says, if you find me a yotzim in a klal, that will prove the klal. So there may be. <coughs> Islam, there's one somewhere. But all the ones I deal with, they all eventually fess up, except for a small group, and I'm going to talk about them soon, that's really horrendous. What I'm going to build for you is a parasha that, frankly, 
it leaves me drained in knowing, so what are we meant to do about this? But you need, I just, you know, when I spoke about this before, when we discussed doing this, this, this conversation, I felt that it was so foolish to even think about implementing or doing anything till everyone is at least in the sugya of what are we, de- what are we dealing with? Like, what is the sugya? And it's going to get a lot worse from where I am yet. I'm so sorry, but it is. But I want you to know the sugya, and I don't mind coming back in a month from now if you want to, and we'll meet again and have a conversation about, so where should we go with this? But you need to sit on this. Do you understand? Sorry, this brother who chapter with the younger sister, yeah. is his anger with the person molested him? Both. With, his anger is with himself primarily. His anger is fury with his parents <coughs> for not stopping him, even though they didn't know about it. Both of the kids, by the way, are furious with their parents who didn't know about it. And they hate their parents, and typically they will engage uh, mentors, therapists, and rabbonim with this vitriolic anger towards their parents who pass on their bad parents. And these poor parents get ripped to shreds because the kids say such, who's not going to believe them? The kids are saying they're terrible parents, we can't trust them, they're this, they're that. And the whole Gansasugya of hate, of deep hate, that's not real at all. It's actually, the hate is self-hate, hate a God and hate my parents because you should have known. You should have been on top of it. You shouldn't have let this happen. In treatment later on, a chalik of the treatment is to re-embrace the family and make amends for that hatred. Sometimes the hatred is so intense, I can never get them back together again. The parents end up hating their kids so intensely for hating them because they don't understand what it's about. We're nice people. Like, what? And then what happens is the kids hate their parents so intensely that the parents' taka start acting not so nice. And then people say, see, look, you're doing it right now. You see what you're doing? You see how you just spoke to her? You see what you just said to, you know, in a Rob's office or a therapist's office? What's really happening is a parent is tormented at this whole thing and furious at their kid for accusing them that this is my fault. Which maybe it is, and they think it is at all. And the parent's falling apart at the seams because, well, maybe it is. I should have been on top of it. Where was I? But what parent thinks at one thirty a.m. I'm meant to be walking up and down the corridor if my son came back from the Masifta, steiging away, and he came back better as money when we were drawing his divrei Torah at the table, that at one thirty I have to be watching out he's not sleeping with his sister. What parent would ever have to worry about that? And yet, both the boy and the girl have unbelievable tainers initially, initially, against their parents, because you should have stopped us. It's your job. It's your job. What? I know, because they are irrational. They're crazy at that time. They're sleeping with each other. You know what they feel like? It's everything's irrational. I'm saying they're they're semi psychotic. I don't know if you when I say psychotic, you ever seen a kid? I work with kids sometimes, and I look at them. They look at me, and I get scared. They look at you with a rage and a fear. It looks like it looks like they're psychotic. They look like they could murder you. They're in such rage. That's usually a self-imploded rage and anger that comes from these kind of behaviors. And it's a telltale sign. Like by me, I know when they make me feel scared, that's an abuse victim. That's an abuse victim. Because nothing else does that. Nothing else does that. So you have these boys and girls. These are their sugyas, where they're completely lost. Worse still, the boys who were now played with, 
a large halik of these boys grow up, even the resilient ones, wondering whether they're homosexual. Because what's happened is like this. Now I'm going to tell you number two of why it's abuse. By the way, the goyim will dings a stark on me for this. Stark on me. In fact, I used to speak in New Jersey. There's a medical school, Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. It's a famous medical school. And they ran for about 10 years an international conference on human sexuality. And the, the dean, for some reason, asked me if I would present at this conference a Jewish perspective, which I felt was a Kiddush Hashem, so I decided to do it. And I, they, it was a riot. You can't imagine. They wanted, first of all, they wanted to kill me. And then I got a standing ovation every time I walked into this place. The first time I walked in, I didn't think I could walk in there. I walked in there, and they have priests on the walls. So I, I was announced number two speaker. I had no idea. And at the top of this auditorium, I got to walk all the way down this massive auditorium, and there's priests on the walls. I'm, I'm still in BMG, and I'm thinking, well, I'm going to walk in there. I can't walk in here. I can't. I'm allowed. I'm not. Uh, so I used to wear glasses. I had surgery on my eyes. I used to wear glasses. I said, I'm going to take my glasses off, and I hope I'll make a Kiddush Hashem. I can't see it without my glasses. So I took my glasses off, put them in my pocket, and I walked in after they announced me. And halfway down, I fell. My hat went off, my coat, my briefcase, you know, whatever. Everything dropped. I get to the bottom of the stage, and then the dean, who was horrified when I fell, you know, and they collapsed, and everyone's like, you know, whispering about me. Well, this is our next speaker, this like never with his, you know, whatever. I wish I looked like, I look like me, a yeshiva guy, you know. And then the dean came running across the stage with her hand outstretched to welcome me. And as she got to me, I go like this. I don't shake hands with ladies. And then the whole place goes, because she's wearing a microphone. I didn't realize, and they heard me say it. <laughs> So I took out my drosha and I said, ladies and gentlemen, doctors, about a thousand people in the soldier room. I said, I brought this speech today. I said, it's the wrong speech. And I tore it up and I threw it down on the floor. I said, I'm going to talk about what you saw that just happened. And then you'll understand us better and where we're coming from. I said, I don't think I can be in this room. I can't be here. I can't stand here. I'm not allowed. I'm aware of what's on the walls, and I can't even look in that direction, simply because I know they're there. 